I'm going to jump right in. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 through 16. We got a pretty massive section uh, of scripture this morning. Let me pray for us, and then let's dive in. Jesus, we thank you for this time. We invite you to do your work amongst us. God, we thank you for the family of God that you brought together by way of your sacrifice, your death on the cross, and your resurrection, and the power, and the unity that only you could bring. And Jesus, we pray this morning that our hearts be submitted to you. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to know you, walk with you, follow you all the days of our lives. We give you this time, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. So, this morning we'll be in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 16. And kind of a question I want to pose before we even get going this morning is, when you think of the concept of family, I want to know what kind of images pop into your mind. Uh, Maybe for some of us it brings up some really positive feelings. Maybe you had a great experience in your family growing up. Maybe you had some amazing times with your parents, with your siblings as you were growing up. Maybe you felt protected. Maybe you felt provided for. Maybe you had some really memorable events or traditions with your family growing up. Um, Maybe you would even say, if it wasn't for my family, I wouldn't even be here today. Like, your family played such a crucial role in your life and modeled family so well for you. But there's others of us in the room this morning um, that when we talk about this notion of family, it also brings up a bunch of really negative connotations. Maybe you had traumatic experiences with your family, with your parents, with your siblings. Maybe you didn't feel protected. Maybe you did not feel provided for. Maybe some of the events or the traditions that you participated in growing up um, have negative connotations for you. Maybe you've been spending your life doubting whether or not you'd ever experience a true sense of family in your life at all. And I realize that there's two categories of people in this room. And as we look at this passage this morning, I want to ask these questions. How does the gospel of Jesus form or reform our idea of family? How does it change this idea of family? How can Jesus restore our family lives and create new relationships in our lives that become God's idea of family for us? And I think our passage today answers these questions pretty well. Here's a truth that I believe, that the gospel restores family relationships and that it influences the way we care for our biological families uh, in times of, both in times of need as well as the, the gospel creates a new family for us, a spiritual family that we talk about. It influences the way we care for each other in times of need. When the church is referred to as family, we shouldn't take that lightly. And we often will say, we want this place to feel like family. We're family. The church is family. We throw these words out there. But I want you to consider this morning that that Meaning of family is more than friendship. It's more than just an acquaintance. So let me recap real quickly where we've been as we've been reading through 1 Timothy. Paul wrote this letter to his disciple, uh, Timothy, so that the church in Ephesus could know the truth of the gospel and, and what biblical doctrine was. And Paul's hope was that for the church that they would live in godliness as God's household, as it says back in chapter three, verses 14 and 15. And so thus far, Paul's addressed specific false teachings, and he's addressed people that are spreading these false teachings. He's given instructions to various groups of people, much like he's doing here in the text that we're going to be in this morning. 
And he's specifically, um, in this text this morning, trying to help them understand how the church was supposed to help with the widows that existed in the church. How was the church to care for the widows? I think the central theme when we talk about this passage hinges around this idea of care. As I was reading and processing this passage, I kept thinking about care. How do we care for one another? How do we care for one another well, both in our homes and in the household of God? And do we do a good job of that? And there's three parts of this passage that I want to look at this morning. Um, the first section is that the, the church is a way that God redeems our ideas of family, our notion of family. The second is that the church ministers to their own families in times of need. And then the third part of this is that the church ministers to each other in times of need. So we minister to one another. Um, so this first one, look at verse one and two with me. He says this, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity, he says. Paul, so Paul instructs Timothy to relate to others in the church as he would his own family members. And it seems as though Timothy had this challenging role in the church of Ephesus, that he was called to pastor them, but check it out. Timothy had to confront the false teachers that had basically abandoned their faith and were leading others to do the same. He was, they were taking them off, off track. He had to look for qualified elders and deacons to lead in the church with him, and, and then add to all of this the fact that he was younger than many of the other people that were in the church, and so he had to gain the respect of the older, being this young man, and he had to be a strong example and, and fulfill this call to preach and teach the word. He had to live it out before them. And, and so you can probably imagine there were a lot of relational tensions between Timothy and others in the church in light of this. And so Paul gave him some guiding principles about how to relate with fellow church members. He uses this word rebuke in verse 1 which means to harshly disapprove of someone. The, the specific word that's used for rebuke here in this passage, it is, it's the only time it's used in the entire Bible. And it's more of a bad rebuke. There are other times that this word rebuke is used in scripture, but it's used in more of a good uh, connotation, and this is actually used in a bad connotation. So the difference would be like, if I snapped at my kids and just went off, um, because I was in a bad mood. Compared to me as a father, if I was to jump in and to correct my kids firmly and calmly, like as a way of disciplining them out of love, like this would be a bad rebuke versus a good rebuke. And so instead of rebuking in a poor way, Paul challenges uh, Timothy to encourage the older men, the, the younger men, the older women, the younger women. And so Timothy's overarching goal was to build up and to support the other men and the women in the church towards a solid faith in Christ Jesus to uphold godliness. And what we need to understand is that the church in Ephesus was not like a spiritual family. They actually looked at themselves as a spiritual family. They were united together. Timothy was to treat those in the church like family members because they were spiritual family members. He was to treat older men in the church like fathers and older women in the church like mothers. He needed to act sensitively and act wisely. He was to treat younger men like brothers and younger women like sisters with concern and love like you would an older sibling. 
And then Paul adds a specific uh, instruction of interacting with young, younger women without any appropriate, inappropriate feelings or gestures. And he says, in all purity. And so some of you might be thinking, but my family's pretty jacked up. You don't have to raise your hand this morning. I don't know how to make sense of this because my family's so messed up. I didn't have a good example for how to be a husband or a wife and how a husband and wife even interact with one another, or how, how to parent a child and, and how people were supposed to relationally treat one another, how brothers and sisters were even supposed to treat one another. How am I supposed to know how to do either of these as a disciple of Jesus now when it was never modeled for, for me before? But this morning, I, I want to encourage you to take heart because God doesn't leave us without any guidance, right? If you believe that Jesus is your savior and Jesus is your king, then the scriptures say that we're children of God and that we're actually led by the Holy Spirit himself. Romans 8, 14 and 15 says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God or daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons or daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so in light of this truth, we can basically instead say, so even though my family was jacked up and my family was completely dysfunctional, I actually don't need to be afraid because I believe that the Holy Spirit assures me that I have this heavenly Father who is perfect, this Father who is perfect in love, this Father who is perfect in guiding me, that, that in Christ I am redeemed, that I can experience change in how I actually interact with and I deal with people uh, and how I deal with my new spiritual family and how I deal with my old biological family, that his word actually reveals God's heart to us, that his spirit guides us and how it is we interact and we live this out. And the main principle in verses one and two is that the church is a way that God redeems this idea of family. Now we have this spiritual family that we're to build up and care for as spiritual brothers and sisters in Jesus. We have this amazing opportunity to, to then build relationships with many older men and, and women. and we, we relate to them as spiritual parents by drawing from their perspectives and, uh, on relationships or careers or marriage or whatever it is, God, faith. We, we learn these solid spiritual habits from these people within the church. We grow in Christ by watching them walk this out, teaching us how to imitate God ourselves. And so we listen to their life experiences like a mom or a dad, and we allow them to help shape us. Second, as we learn how to do this as a spiritual family, it actually becomes training for how we do it in our biological families as well. When, when, I, went, when I went away to college and began to live on my own, the Lord really began to do something in Heather and I to show us like his heart for his church. Heather and I began to be surrounded by men and women who just loved Jesus in that season of our life. People that loved the church, people that loved their families. But for 10 years of our life that we spent away from our immediate family, our church family and the people that we were doing ministry with became family to us. And for Heather and I, this was really our first experience of understanding what it meant that the church was family. Because for 10 years of our lives, we didn't have family around. And so we learned that the church was our family. They were the people that we were walking with, that were challenging us, that were sharpening us, that were mentoring us. Like we relied deeply on the family of God that he brought together for us, both in Seattle and Southern California as we traveled. 
What's interesting is now 20 some years later, as I look back on that season of my life, I realized that those were the building blocks sort of uh, uh, in, in like my own paradigm for marriage, my own paradigm for parenting and friendship. That, that I realized that I experienced this truth like firsthand in the fact that the, the church is one way that God redeemed this idea of families. Some of you had that modeled for you well. Some of you did not have that modeled for you well. All of us are trying to figure out what God's family looks like and how to walk this out in tandem with one another. The second thing is that the church ministers to their own families in times of need. So verses three through eight, he says this. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, listen to this, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Pretty harsh statement. So Paul instructs Timothy and the church in Ephesus to make sure that they took care of the widows that were within their own biological families. Like if they're there, you need to take care of them. And so Paul starts out by saying, honor widows who are truly widows. And so when he uses this specific word honor here, he meant to show respect to someone or to show value or worth. And usually you did so by providing some sort of financial aid for them. And so Paul wanted the church to take care of those widows who were truly in need, which we'll get to in a little bit, because they were, there were many widows in the ancient world in the church. And so Paul addresses the believers who had widows in need in their own biological families first to make sure that they were the ones who were properly cared for by their families in times of need. In the Roman culture during the first century, Understand, there was no welfare system like we have it today for people in need, like widows. If a woman's husband died and there was still like a portion of the dowry left, uh, then she would live off of that. But in the unfortunate case where the dowry's dried up and there's nothing left, the widow would find herself in a really difficult situation. So in these cases, the widows were supposed to be taken care of by their children, by their grandchildren, by their extended families. And so in verses three through eight, Paul reinforces the responsibility that the believers had to care for those that are in your household, to look after them. Paul says in verse four, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. Paul said that, that believers were to learn godliness. They were to train themselves to basically sync their faith in the gospel with the teaching of the scriptures and with their lives, that it all had to be interconnected. And so the, the primary realm of life to do this was in the area of their families. Like this was how it fleshed out. What you believed and what you knew and how you actually walked this out could happen in the family context. And so they were to care for the people in their families who were in these seasons of need, mainly the widows, as an expression of their faith in the gospel and as an expression of sound doctrine. Let me pause for a second and mention something. For those of you in this room 
that I know that I'm talking to this morning, that you are in a season where you are caring for your family members. You have family members that are in extreme need and you're sacrificing a lot to invest in them right now. Let me just say that your ministry to them is of utmost importance. I have the highest level of respect for you and the way you sacrifice to invest in your families. I, I really believe that the way we serve our families in that sense is sort of this, it's this expression of our faith, that when the rubber meets the road, our faith is tested to be real by the ways that we try to minister to our family members. Like that's where it meets the road. So I wanna encourage some of you in this room this morning that no matter how difficult that's been, that it actually pleases the heart of God that you would set aside the things that you know you could make primary in your life to invest in your immediate family. The sacrifice is well worth it. But Paul says it in verse four in a way that sounds a lot like many cultures around the world today. That the, the children and grandchildren were to make some return to their parents. That they were to give back the, the love and the care that their parents gave them in raising them throughout childhood, that they were to give back. Um, this sounds maybe a little bit impersonal, but I thought it was kind of helpful. The, the U.S. Department of Agriculture reported that it cost about $233,000 to raise one child from birth to 17 years old. Any amens in the room this morning? You're like, if I could just get that back. You can't even buy a house with it, so it doesn't matter, you know? Um, $233,000 to raise a kid from birth to 17, and that's not even including college. So as a parent, I can attest to this, that it is a massive investment of money and time and energy to care and raise children. But anybody in this room that would say it's not worth it, <laughs> it's well worth it. But, but the motivation and the heart behind a child or, or a grandchild caring for their parents or their grandparents or other family members in time of need has to be seen through the lens of the gospel, which is what Paul does in verse eight. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There's this connection between caring for the older individuals or family members and our faith in Jesus. That if you have faith in Jesus, what's assumed is that this is what you do or you do not have faith. And so think about that for a second. How did your mother show you care as you were growing up? My, my mom showed me care by feeding me in all hours of the night, right? My mom showed me care by taking me and picking me up from sporting events and, and different uh, events growing up. My mom showed me care by speaking words of encouragement to me at points in my life when I was down. She took care of me when I was sick. She always made sure I had what I needed. Now, it would be awful if in return what I said was, the only reason I care about my mom now is because I owe her something. You did all that, I'm just gonna do this for you now. Like, what a horrible heart to have. Our proper response in this should be something like, I've received such amazing, like abundant, sacrificial love from my mom, it's actually my joy to serve her now. Like, I get to return the favor. And unfortunately, many people's experiences with their parents are probably not even close to that ideal. 
But we can go further by applying the gospel. It's because of the overflowing love and care that we've received from God our Father that we have love to even give our parents and our grandparents or our other family members that are in need. Our family members are not perfect, and many people most likely didn't experience love from their parents even close to perfectly. But the gospel says, even though my parents' love was not perfect, I can actually still love and care for them because my heavenly Father loves and cared for me. His love is perfect through me. And so for all of us, our ministry in our homes is vital. It's so important. Like we might find it easier to serve people in the church, right? Sometimes it's easier just to serve a friend. We might find it easier to serve people at work. But let me tell you this morning, what the Bible says here is that God wants you to serve your families and that he gives us the physical and emotional strength to be able to do so in Christ Jesus. And the gospel says, even though my own love runs out, I can actually still love because my heavenly father's love never runs out for me. It's never ran out for me. I wanna shift perspectives for a second from talking about those ministering to those in need to maybe even some of you in this room who are the person that is in need. And this is sort of a short but important point. In the scriptures, it's really clear that God has a special place in his heart for the widows. Just look at the description of God in Psalm 68.5. He says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Like the, the law that the Lord gave to Israel reflected this part of God's character. This is why he forbid the mistreatment of widows and orphans in Exodus 22 and specifically commanded the Israelites to leave unpicked grain, olives, and grapes behind for the widows and the orphans in the community in Deuteronomy 24. This is all to say that widows and orphans and all others in need are important to God because this is who God is. God is a protector and a provider for those that are in need. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 3. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when we understand our true spiritual state, which is often manifest through our physical state, that, that we are poor in spirit, that we are desperately in need of help from God, we are in a prime position to receive the grace of God in those moments. And so we see clearly that, that we are in no position to save ourselves, that, that we actually need divine help that's given to us only by God himself, that our Father gives us faith to see that he's provided salvation through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, that our sins are paid for, that we, we're made right with God, that we're adopted into God's family. And so Paul wrote in, in this passage in verses five and six, she who is truly a widow, left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. In other words, those widows who do belong to God by faith in Jesus can trust that their heavenly Father will take care of them. The, the, the hope that God gives her in those prayers are, are expressions of true godliness, which is living consistently with the faith that they profess. However, those widows who respond to their difficult situations and self-indulgent behavior, 
actually show that their faith is absent in their hearts, that they're not dependent on God. We have plenty of people within our own church context that are in seasons of need right now in our church. Some of you that are recently unemployed, some of you that are single parents, like having to work and raise kids, some that are suffering from debilitating illnesses or injuries, like it's not easy at all. But you can still find comfort and joy that your heavenly father cares for you, that he sees you, that he knows your situation, that he's refining your faith, which as it says in 1 Peter 1.7, is more precious than gold, is how it's referred to. So I wanna encourage you this morning to not lose sight of the dignity and the value that you hold in God's eyes, that we can be recipients of God's care for us through both our biological families and our spiritual families. Finally, I wanna look at verses nine through 16, that the church ministers to each other in times of need, that it's not just about the household and your biological family, that it also extends to those that have been adopted into the family of God those that profess to follow Jesus that are here this morning, that we have a responsibility to care for one another. He says this in verses nine through 16. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. Like what an amazing woman but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I, so I, would, have, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Kind of harsh. So we see Paul instructing Timothy in the church of Ephesus to take care of the widows that are in their spiritual family. That is in the church. And so Paul's talking about making sure that the widows who really need help and have no biological family members to support them still actually get the help that they need from the church. And so he makes this clear back in verse three and then right here in verse 16, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Brief caveat as I was reading this this week, here's my thought is that we're living in this day and age where we have this expectation in the church that we should corporatize care for one another. That, that many believe that it's the institutionalized church's responsibility to care for everybody. And so th th this is why churches have developed benevolence programs, which um, I, I don't 100% disagree with, right? But I love the fact that our church sets aside funds from our budget to help those in need. Like, that's a great thing. But we, what we can't do is limit the distribution of care to the church to just the organized church and the paid staff. Because at some point we all have a responsibility to sacrifice for others. Um, I, I've been hearing as I spend time with like ministry leaders and business leaders and whatnot, I begin to hear from people more and more, especially out in the marketplace, talking more about outsourcing. 
how they're outsourcing things. People are looking for ways to hire people for less money. They're looking for ways to um, pay for help in order to buy time for themselves. So I wanna spend less and I wanna create more time for me. That's the gist of outsourcing, isn't it? To save money and to save time. And so where this gets really devastating for the church is when this is how the people of God begin to perceive this as the way that we care for one another in the church or outside the church. That, that we, we often want people to get the help that they need, but we want it to cost us the least amount of money possible and require the least amount of our time as possible. So we'll outsource care to somebody else to do that for us. I'll give money and you can go do it. I don't have the time, but I have the money, whatever it is. We're outsourcing care. And my challenge to us this morning is that that is not care at all. It's not care as Jesus intended. Care as Jesus intended would be the opposite of this because caring for others is something that costs us more money and requires more of our time. Care is something that costs us something. It's actually meant to be costly. If it didn't cost you something, it would not be care because what you're saying is I love somebody enough in the way that Jesus loved me that I would sacrifice something in my own life to bestow that upon them. What I have is yours which is not the mantra in sort of the individualized culture that we live in in the church today. What's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. What about a church context where everything kind of became everybody's and they were living in a world where it was like, if I had, then I'll do. And we all feel some level of responsibility or burden to do for others. And it's really important that we understand this. This is why Paul said in verse 16, this harsh statement, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And as harsh as this sounds, care is at the core of a follower of Jesus. So is sacrifice, so is generosity. And so when we expect the institution of the church to handle all of this for us, this is what happens. One, more falls on fewer people's shoulders because everybody doesn't sense the responsibility to care. Two, there's never enough money or time to provide care for everybody that needs it because not everybody feels a strong sense to give it. Three, it paints a really poor picture of the gospel. God didn't look for other options to care for us. God sent his only son. The, the greatest sacrifice he could make he actually followed through with. The greatest sacrifice imaginable to provide the greatest care imaginable for mankind is the route that God went. This is the model set for us in Jesus. And lastly, I believe there's a blessing that awaits for those who choose to sacrifice for others. No sacrifice goes unrewarded in God's eyes. So whether or not the Lord chooses to return exactly what it is that you gave up for his sake, that's between you and the Lord. But the Lord does promise to Reward us. I'm reminded of what Peter said to Mar in Mark chapter 10. Peter says to Jesus, see, we have left everything and we've followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. There's a promise from Jesus. 
there's a reward that waits. Not monetary, but there's an eternal reward that waits. There's a family of God that you get to be a part of. That's part of the reward. And in a nutshell, we keep the church from being all that Jesus intended for it to be, both to each other and to the world. Like, we should be the most generous. There's nothing that blesses me more than when I hear about stories within our own church context of an individual or a family in church that just stepped in and provided for somebody else's need. Man, that just blesses my heart, because what I realize is that people see needs and they step in and fill them. They don't come to the church and say, oh, you know, here's the need, can you guys handle this for me? No, I see a need, and I know that I can fill it, and so I'm gonna jump in, and I'm gonna be part of the solution to this problem. We bear this together. The, the gospel pays it forward. In verses nine and 10, Paul wanted Timothy to, pr- to prioritize those who were in most need because they didn't have the family to help them. And they were also deserving of the financial support from the church. And so the, the qualifications that Paul stated here were they had to be 60 years old or older. They had to be one husband woman. They were faithful to their husbands before they passed. They had to have a reputation for good works. They had to have been hospitable, a humble servant, cared for others in need, and devoted to doing what was good. So for these older widows described like this, benevolence would have been greatly needed for them. But Paul said in verse five that these types of widows were already mature in the faith so that they set their hope on God and they continued in supplications and prayers night and day. Like they knew their need and what their wishes and their desires were. What they chose was to even set some of those aside to focus their attention on God. In other words, they would, they would have seen their provision from the church even as God's love and care for them. In verses 11 through 13, Paul then gives some instructions regarding how to handle widows that are still young enough to remarry. Paul said in verse 11, to refuse to enroll younger widows. And so there was this concern in the church in Ephesus that maybe the younger widows had the strong desire to get married that would lead them to marrying an unbeliever, that would lead them away from their faith in Jesus. And in the first century Roman culture, a spouse would basically change their religious identification in in their marriage. And so the, the, the fear was that they would just align themselves with somebody because they want to get married and because they want provision, but actually in doing so, they'd be willing to abandon their faith to go after that. And so these younger widows whose faith was still a bit shaky might have been tempted to sort of short circuit God's process by finding their own means to satisfy their needs and their wants. Let me wrap up with this final thought. Um, I, I pray that the financial help that the church extends to those in need would help people in their faith in Jesus. Like I, I, I pray that that is the case. And there are probably more cases of people who have money but are in need in other ways and are tempted to stray away from the Lord. And these days, there's so much hardship that we're experiencing in this world. But it could be issues with mental health, it could be sickness, it could be tragedy that, that, that strikes a loved one or themselves. It could be people struggling with being alone or isolated. It could be so many things. But the common link, whether it's benevolence or other forms of care, is that God actually uses our service to one another. For for believers who come together in the local church, he uses our service to one another to show each other that we are loved and that we are cared for by our Father. 
and it's vital to the strengthening of the church. Like in light of how our Father cares for us, we've made a covenant together as a spiritual family to now care for one another. We should be checking in with those in the family that we haven't seen in a while. In a while. We should make time to share a meal or visit with somebody. We should write an encouraging message to someone we know that needs it. Like, let's persistently pray for and intercede on each other's behalf. Do we actually view the church's family is my question for you. Anybody grow up in a family where you never shared a family meal? Like, there were just no moments where you came together. And you would look back at that and think, like, that wasn't true family. Like, families do things together. They sacrifice for one another. They make time for one another. They invest in one another. They love each other. And when I think about our church, when we reference the church's family, what I hope to see is you guys caring for one another. Like, the church is popping on all cylinders when people begin to step into the needs themselves and not expect somebody else to do it. The church is popping on all cylinders when people realize the same gospel that just radically rocked my life. God's extension of his love and his grace to me, I'm going to be an extension of that to other people. I'm gonna be a conduit of that. God, show me where the needs are. When was the last time you prayed that prayer? Most of us are too scared to pray it. Where's the need and how have you called me to step into it? Do we actually view the church as family, or is it just verbiage that we use? Because we know that we share a heavenly Father who has blessed us in every way imaginable in Christ Jesus. How do we go about dispersing that blessing to one another? Two application pieces, and I'll invite the band to come up. Here's some next steps that I think we can take as a response to this kind of the core message of this, to care for one another well in our homes and in the household of God. One, what are the specific ways that you can serve your family that has a need and or fellow church member who are in need right now? What are the ways you can do that? Do you believe that by our actions, by by faith in God's working in us, that it can lead to real change so that we can truly love people that are difficult to care for or whom we're called to serve. So when we step out in faith, then it opens up these conversations and these perspectives that can change. So think about specific ways that the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now to serve your family members or serve your brothers or sisters of Christ that are in need. Second is I want you to think about your attitude regarding your own family or fellow church members. What does the Holy Spirit need to change in you regarding those people? Because there's many of us who can think of somebody right now that we'd be like, I'm down to love people, but not that guy. I'm down to do whatever for that person, but not that one. And more often than not, it's that one that God's asking you to go after. Because that one is gonna cost you the most. And because you were that one that Jesus came after himself. So who is it that the Spirit is leading you right now to care for, to look after? There's lots of needs around us. And I want to pray that you would allow the Spirit to bring conviction to the attitudes that exist in our heart that keep us from stepping into this desire that God has for us to step in and care for others, to fill the need, 
We have this infinite supply of God's love that never ends, that he's given us to bestow upon others. So how do we love and minister to others? Would you guys stand with me? I don't know about you, but um, to be radically honest, I do have those people in my life that I know that I've put sort of a wall up. Or people that are harder to serve and care for than others. And yet when I look around this church and I know the various needs that exist here, man, I know there's marital needs in this room. And I also know there's older couples in this church that have battled those same marital issues that have the time and the availability to step in and to coach those younger couples that are going through it. I know that there's many of us in this room that are parents that have no idea what we're doing. And supposedly there's an older generation that does, right? And we have the opportunity to learn from them, to be discipled and mentored by them so we can be the mothers and the fathers that God's called us to be. I know that there's some in this room that have battled crazy relational conflict in your life. And you've seen God's hand move through that conflict. And there's others in this room that are in the midst of that conflict right now. And you're like, how in the world am I gonna get through this? But God has provided the people that could step in and coach you through that process, to point you to Jesus, to stand with you, to pray for you. And so my question is just how is the spirit stirring in you right now? When I ask you who the specific people are that he has called you to care for and serve, who are they? I know there's names and there's, there's pictures that come to your mind. Maybe even people within our own context this morning that are identified and you can see them and you know the need and God's calling you to step into it. My question is what's keeping us from doing it? That's how the church is to function. So I wanna pray for us. I wanna pray that he continues to knit us together as the family of God, that he continues to reveal needs to us and show us how we can step into them. And they don't all have to be financial. Some of them are time, some of them are prayer. I mean, I look at the faithfulness of the older widows and the way they washed people's feet and they continued to pray. Night and day, they would pray. Like they found themselves in a season of life where they were freed up to just focus on the things that really mattered and they devoted themselves to that. And what does that look like for you and I? Let me pray for you. Jesus, I just, um, I thank you for each individual in this room. And um, Lord, even as I was praying through this text this morning, I just got the sense that there are people literally in this room this morning who have withheld care and love from others as a result of their bitterness, their hurt, their fears. And yet sometimes the greatest work that you can do is when we choose to sacrifice for those that are most difficult to sacrifice for, to step into somebody's mess as you did for us, to be an image of the gospel of Jesus to somebody else. I pray Jesus, for our hearts to come alive in you, for you to continue to show us not only the great sacrifice that you made for your church, 
but how it is that we can continue to model that sacrificial love for the rest of the world. And so I pray your hand be upon those in this room. I pray that those that have need would be cared for, that those who have an abundance of something would feel just the strong desire to step into other people's needs, that you would begin to link arms and lives within this room to reveal to us what it means to be the body of Christ, the family of God, to walk this out together. And I pray your blessing upon this church, Lord. I thank you for all that you're doing in people's lives. Thank you for those that are being baptized tonight. Would it just be an amazing moment, God, where it would be as though you show up and you begin a lifelong work in these people where they continue day after day to point back to this moment that they surrendered all to you, that they went down on the waters of baptism, that they were purified and raised again and granted newness of life as a result of your sacrifice and your power. And I pray your hand be upon them throughout this day as they prepare to be baptized tonight. And we pray all of this in your mighty, mighty name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.